Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, president and editor-in-chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is This Week in Global Development. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of This Week in Global Development, our weekly podcast here at DevX, where we dive into all things global development. This week, we are talking about climate justice. We're talking about the just transition in a special episode that's sponsored by the Open Society Foundations. And I think the timing is so ideal, given we've just come through the COP meetings, of course, before that, the World Bank annual meetings, Davos just happened, and we're looking ahead to so many more conversations where climate justice is right at the center. We've got two fantastic guests with us to have this discussion. Yamide Danyet is the Director of Climate Justice at OSF, or the Open Society Foundations, and Professor Yuba Sakona is, of course, known to all of you from his role as the Vice Chairman of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. He's no longer in that role, but he continues to wear many, many hats as a, as a real leader and influencer on these issues. So good to be with you. Hi, Yamid, and hi, Yuba. Hi, Raj. Uh, very good to be with you and great to be um, uh, sharing this session with Yuba. Hi, Raj. Yuba, maybe I could just start with you. I can tell you my own impression attending many global development events like the ones I just mentioned, there's sort of a tension. And the tension is between this enormous opportunity that the transition to renewable energy is going to create, particularly in Africa, which has the greatest solar energy potential in the world. It has a huge amount of the critical minerals that are needed for the energy transition. So there's enormous potential in a place like Africa and in many other parts of the global South. And yet a fear that if we don't get this right, this energy transition will just exacerbate some of the inequalities and injustices that already exist in the world. And I wonder, uh, Yoba, can you give us your impression of what do you think is at stake in this transition? You know, uh, just transition uh, within the climate conversation became something that, uh, you know, looked like uh, a magic. But we need also to understand what that means beyond the word just energy transition. Uh, first of all, uh, it aims to ensure that uh, uh, the shift toward renewable energy is fair, inclusive, and does not disproportionately impact vulnerable communities. You know, it, there is a number of components that need to be considered uh, within the framework of just energy transition. One key element is uh, social equity, that prioritizing vulnerable communities to ensure uh, they benefit from the transition, including job creation, access to affordable clean energy, and protection from adverse impact. Obviously, also it's related to job transition programs 
And it requires community involvement at various levels, engaging local communities' decision-making process, allowing them to be part of the whole process in development and implementation of renewable energy projects. And obviously, in the context of Africa, what is very important is access to clean energy, ensuring universal access to clean energy, particularly for communities and uh, that may currently lack renewable power sources. And then uh, protection of livelihoods, all those different elements, nice world are important. But if you consider the specific case of Africa, the continent facing unique challenges and opportunities in transitioning. I, you know, in the beginning, I did not want at all to use the word energy transition in context Africa because the continent needs to build its energy system. But there is one area transition is important. This is firewood and charcoal for cooking. And then we need to move from that to electric cooking. That is the transition that is needed. In the other cases, we need to build energy system based on the renewable energy. And just to sum, I think that is important and then to have in mind that a successful and just energy transition, it requires an holistic approach that addresses social, economic, and environmental aspects, what we call sustainable development, tailoring strategies, and then to the specific needs and challenges of uh, different regions and communities. It's important and then to have in mind international cooperation and support as they are, they are critical and crucial um, you know, those are some of the elements and then how to jumpstart uh, to renewable in the context of Africa rather than in a real transition. Here and there, there is transition that is needed, but basically the continent needs to jumpstart. Yeah, I think you, you're so right to use a different word than transition, or at least to really emphasize what we mean, because you're so right that in many contexts, it's about firewood and charcoal, right? We're just replacing very traditional forms of cooking fuels and heating fuels. And for most people in a lot of places, this is gonna be the first time they get access to some kind of reliable electric grid. So it's a huge opportunity in that sense, but it's not necessarily the same kind of transition, quote unquote, that we think of when we're thinking about many other parts of the world. Uh, Yamita, I'd love to bring you into the discussion because when I think of OSF and I think of this year's elections. I mean, it's some 60% of the world's population live in countries that will vote this year. And I think about how there's a lot of backsliding on democratic rights and on you know, issues, of, uh, issues of civil liberties, the kinds of issues that OSF works on every day. And then I listen to Yuba saying, hey, you know what we need in this transition or this jumpstart is we need to involve local communities. They need to have a voice, they need to have a say feels like this, these two trends are maybe going in the wrong direction. And I'd, I'd love to get your overall take on how this transition or this jumpstart is going. Well, thank you very much. I think, um, you know, what I would say um, to, to complement what Yuba uh, has just uh, highlighted is to bring a little bit of these people-centered dimension. That's going to be really important, you know, when 
um, approaching, you know, all of those debates um, ahead of, you know, those elections. You know, the problem with the just transition concept is that it has been associated with plant closings, risks, environmental concerns, generally trumping empathy and support for workers. And uh, I believe that the just transition, especially ahead of this, uh, those uh, uh, elections, needs to needs to re-embrace the equity frame it is about, as Yuba said, and to reclaim that it is visionary, it is unifying, it is country regionally based, uh, it is generative, it is restorative, and that visionary, restorative and generative uh, aspect can only be done if we bring together uh, different parts of the societies, all constituencies. And this means that it's going to be about not only the quantity, but the quality of those clean energy jobs. Uh, it's going to be about the provision of assistance, safety nets, investment, uh, and economic development support for impacted workers and communities. It's also about closing the gaps of pre-existing inequities, inequalities, which means that the people who haven't had access to jobs or to energy in the first place will be able to benefit from you know, this transition as well. And it's also... You know, there's also this notion of pace. You know, we need that. We need to do it fast um, because this is what also science tells us. But we know that we need to acknowledge the quality of that pace, the equity of that pace. And that pace, therefore, of transformation will need to be greater for some countries than others, pending, pending the enabling conditions, pending the circumstances of both countries communities. And it implies a change in the way the economy and the market are structured domestically and internationally. It is about how you move from a purely extractive economy to one that is about the creation and life. The vibrant society is connected also with nature and the, the uh, uh, a way to move away from burden sharing only to benefit sharing. And this means looking also at the windfall profits of the oil and gas industry uh, compared to the arm and impact that has been incurred because of you know, their industry. And, and also question the fact that we are continuing to subsidize fossil fuel, the fossil fuel industry, instead of reducing the inequality uh, um, uh, coming from it, you know, all those uh, prices increasing, how it affects the farmers, uh, any consumers, how we shift the cost of the climate action onto also wealthier and higher polluters. It's about, so for me, it's about recognizing, as you said earlier, and as um, Yuba highlighted, with humility, the unintended adverse effects that could come out from climate measures, uh, find ways to minimize them with the social lens, including the racial, the intergenerational, and the gender justice uh, dimension. It requires culture shifts, mind shifts, repurposing of the economy towards energy, not just energy security, it's energy sovereignty of those of countries. It's not just about food security, thanks to energy. It's about food sovereignty at the end of the day. So, 
Yeah, I think it's so fascinating that we could have a really narrow conversation about an energy transition, right? Moving from from fossil fuels to something renewable, from firewood to something renewable. That's a really narrow discussion. And the way you just framed it, I mean, it is so fascinating because you're saying it's not just about that. This is actually a much larger economic and even societal transition that's possible that is really worker centric, right? That like brings indigenous and local communities into the picture. And it's, it's a huge opportunity to maybe reframe even the way we're thinking about development in a lot of these contexts. I, I think that this has been clearly articulated very well in the uh, last IPCC assessment report. We, we need a profound transformation of all aspects of the society with uh, uh, four ma- major transitions, starting with energy and uh, land and agriculture, urban infrastructure, and uh, the industrial sector and the transport sector. But uh, it will require a real system leadership that we are lacking, and uh, not looking at uh, individual countries, but at the global level with at least uh, five major elements in head. Uh, one related to the ambitious, uh, what uh, have been driving since the Paris uh, Agreement, the nationally determined contribution being very uh, um, um, ambitious. And then the second element is, as I indicated, the transition. And then that will bring uh, the being away of the use of fossil fuel. And all those has to be connected to protection of the most vulnerable uh, all over the world, in the south, in the north, any places that critical, crucial. And then with the fourth element is the climate justice. We cannot do that without equitable distribution of resources and then the wealth and the other that international cooperation will allow us to uh, look at that. And then the fifth element, this is on my heart, and then since the climate convention, I spent a lot of effort on it, but it has been neglected. This is education, information, and awareness raising in a continuous basis. Without that, we cannot move. Yeah, and I guess I worry you, but when I think about the pressure from a big global economic shift toward renewable energy and, and places that might not be ready for it, Right. And so a massive demand coming for lithium, you know, or for cobalt or for some of the other minerals that are present on the continent. And I think about how hard it's going to be to organize that demand, to do the many things you just talked about, to think about this at a global kind of industrial level. What do you think is actually happening now or will happen in places like DRC, in places that have a lot of mineral resources? A lot, a lot of artisanal mining. Um, how do you think this will actually develop and what do you want to see happen? I think first of all, as I indicated, it requires leadership, a system leadership at a global level or also at the level of country where those mineral resources uh, they are. And then to uh, bring all the element of justice and then ensuring uh, climate justice for local communities, for indigenous people that are affected 
by mining of those critical minerals. If one element, if you look at any images coming from DRC, kids working in the mines, and then we have no expectation in life, at the same time, enjoying, you know, uh, e-vehicles uh, everywhere in the emerging economy in industrial country. This is frightening. And then it, it is important that we look at those uh, multifaceted approach and that include effective communication. And then to have a clear idea also of that, to have effective communication, litigation aspect, and the use of various tools and mechanisms. And then one may, because I, I think that it's important and then to have a communication and engagement because people in DRC have no clue idea of the, those critical minerals, including my country also, because they will start soon in Mali, production of lithium not far from Bamako. And then people are not at all informed about it. That is, is very important, the, the key element. And then it's important and then to look at the litigation and legal tools, not only at national level, because of the corruption and different uh, elements related to that, a third party. And then at the global level, we need to look at uh, those different aspects. And then to look also at develop a kind of number of tools and mechanisms for protection, uh, the, you know, having a kind of... Uh, a protocol for the communities and the social impact assessment, and then uh, to look at uh, the implication and then for uh, sustainable mining practices. And then the way they are doing the mining also is not at all considering any kind of human being. And it's important at that regard, at international level also, we have a kind of international guidelines. And then to look at all those different aspects. And then to also revisit and then look at the corporate social responsibility, some of the big companies also, the big countries, and that will be, uh, uh, you know, using those different resources. Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals. But are you subscribed to DevX Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevX Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevEx Newswire and visit devex.com newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. Hey, David, I'd love to get your take on this big macro trend of a, a growing global demand for critical minerals that just happened to be in many cases, in places like Mali. And, you know, what Yuba described, the need to inform people, citizens who live there about what's happening. And I just wonder how that massive demand is starting to play out and what you think needs to be done to ensure it can lead to some kind of a true economic development that's actually inclusive of the people who live in these areas. 
what I would you know highlight is when you look at the energy sector, for example, two third is very much looked into the electricity generation, but at least a third of it goes into the different industrial sectors, you know, of the economy, and uh, and this is I'm using that because it shows how important to look into the supply chains. So, you know, the 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 lithium, the rare critical minerals that we need for the EVs, um, but also even for the renewable energy, for some of the hydrogen um, uh, energy, we we need to look at the domino, the millions and domino effect that will come to the different industries through the supply chain, and to make sure that those critic those countries rich in critical minerals are not just used as ex- you know as exporters of those minerals are just are not just extracted upon but that there's a manufacturing industry and a supply chain and cooperation within uh, the regions that is also put in place and i think you know based on the work that yuba and about 50 other um experts, you know, from the African diaspora, you know, has been looking into this. And we also see the emerging the emergence of um, a continental framework on continent on critical minerals that try to look at how to really harness the strength of different countries, you know, uh, like we did in Europe for Airbus, you, in, in, you know, the, the Airbus um, company, you have the designing happening in Germany, you have the assembly in France, the marketing in, in, um, in, in Spain and other aspects in, in the UK. You know, h- how you look at the whole supply chain and make sure that in this triangle, of critical minerals that you know that includes Zimbabwe, Zambia, uh, DRC, uh, South Africa. How you and and actually it goes even beyond, as Yuba said, even in Mali. How we make the most of it? Burkina Faso indicated recently that you know they they have if, uh, uh, found a, a way to treat um, some waste from the mining industry. Well, what role are they going to play? How are we going to harness that in that supply chain with a regional cooperation framework? But I think what is important, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Asia or Latin America, is to make sure that those countries that are minerally rich are not just extracted upon and that there's a move toward the manufacturing ladder to create the sovereignty, the, you know, the not just security of access, you know, to to that energy and to those resources, but to really boost, you know, the industrial policies. And I'm insisting on that because we want those industrial policies that are talked about to really include that. And and of course, you know, you need to look at to to bring the indigenous people. We know that most of the most of the uh, the land. You know, with critical minerals are going through um, through indigenous lands, frontline communities, and we need to really make sure that there's uh, uh, awareness, there's good edu- 
indication that they are part of the decision-making process. Otherwise, you're going to continue to have just fractions. And one of the aspects that is particularly concerning for me is that you may reproduce some of the curves that you've seen in the dash to uh, gas, uh, where you you also had a lot of uh, land grabbing, so the, the land use rights is important, the workers' rights is important, um, and and how to to make sure that the frontline communities and the activists that are really promoting you know those rights are protected. Yeah, I think it's so important the way you both have put it. I mean, who wants to own an EV that was made with child labor? And you know, we need to have confidence in these large global industries that they're living up to the standards that I think consumers would demand of them if there was the kind of awareness that Yuba has talked about. Because I think right now the renewable energy movement, the revolution is seen as kind of an unmitigated good thing in much of the world. And there's not enough conversation about the potential downsides if we don't get this right. And I think one of those implications, I mean, is this issue of skilling up the workforce for this revolution in critical minerals and adding value to those, as you were describing, you know, really building an industry like Airbus has done in Europe. You know, to do that, of course, people look at the continent of Africa and say, well, it's a burgeoning youth population. There's going to be a lot of people who are ready to take on these jobs. That's true. But it's not so clear that you can just employ somebody in this work without skilling them up. So there's a very big implication around education. And I wonder what you're seeing in that regard and, and what you're what you're expecting countries to try to do to be ready for this opportunity. Well, thanks. I think that one of the experts on education and the models of education is is Yuba. Um, you know, I you know I was fascinated, you know, by uh, his sharing on how this uh, important issue of education and capacity building and capacity mobilization because you know sometimes you don't build just from scratch there are uh, a lot of um, uh, expertise already in the countries about how you mobilize them in in the best way um, and I think you know in the in the context of of the mining industry for example we want to move away from uh, from coal, and I think this is already happening. Uh, move away from um, from from gas. You know, so those miners who were in coal mines. You know, there will probably be more required in critical minerals uh, mines. So there's sometimes lateral um, um, transition that could happen, and I'm I'm just saying that because. There's the sentiment that you know this transition that we want to see to maintain um, uh, a breathable um, planet, you know, will means a lot of cuts of jobs. But actually, you could have uh, just lateral moves of jobs because what we would need uh, for powering this new, um, this renewed economy um, and more equitable, you know, prosperity. Um, is going to be uh, to require different dif- different resources um, with uh, but requiring sometimes the same type of skills. Uh, but of course you will need 
uh, to upgrade a number of other skills. And you will need also to create the incentives for those workers in, on, in the mines to, to really see the benefits of having healthier and better quality jobs, you know, by in, in, in moving uh, also along the, the, the transition. So that mindset also is going to be important to really create the benefits. Um, the, there's really rehabilitation project that would be needed in mines that would need to be stop altogether. Uh, there's this this place in South Africa and Pumalanga uh, that has been really uh, the lung of of the the, the country's um, uh, energy, um, but based on coal, ninety percent of coal and. In the most and 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 there's there may be a dash to um, the hydrogen or renewable um, places in South Africa that may not be in that region. So you will need also to look into the displacement uh, implications and how to turn you know those mines into other projects. And rehabilitation is something that um, very often comes from the people actually in the locals who have good ideas on how to turn you know their place into a, a more breathable uh, a more breathable one uh, because they have been also um, uh, they had their health undermined also by this industry and the, the the other dimension that I wanted to to bring is you have this renewable transition, but we need to to also create the bridge with the resilience. A lot of those places where, you know, you need, you have a lot of mines, you have a lot of opportunities, they're also very vulnerable to climate impacts. And they need, there needs to be a lot of actions to adjust to climate impacts. And I think Yuba can talk more about this, but, you know, the resilience pathways that the IPCC, the latest report, have acknowledged is really calling for desiloing, you know, actions to mitigate, to reduce emissions, to keep it cleaner, to also actions to make any infrastructures, you know, more resilient, you know, to the climate change, to floods, you know, for example, or to droughts uh, in many of those places. So it's really important to look at, you know, both sides. It's, you know, a transition to decarbonize, but also to be more resilient. And um, and a lot of, and you need the technology, um, uh, more advanced technology, but there's a lot of indigenous knowledge that can be harnessed even more. And I think the challenge of this new era is going to, to really align uh, technology and indigenous knowledge together instead of uh, having them uh, uh, intention. I think you put that so beautifully. I mean, I just think about the idea that you have people sitting in London or New York making big ideas and plans about these big global industries and not thinking about the indigenous communities that are absolutely essential to the success of these industrial transformations at the global scale. And what you said is so right, that they should be part of that conversation. They need to be at the table. They have a lot to offer as well to figure out how we do this as a planet. And I know you, but you talked about that as well, just as we kind of wrap up our conversation. It seems to me like, as Yamide said, 
the places in the world that we're talking about are the epicenter of multiple trends. You know, these are the places that are suffering for the most severe humanitarian crises. In part, that's because they're suffering from the worst effects of climate, for worse droughts, worse floods, uh, heat waves. And they're also the places that have the critical minerals, have the solar potential, have a young workforce. So in many ways, the world's attention should be converging on these places. And we need a maybe a new way of thinking about the opportunity. And maybe that's in, in the language you used to start us off, you of uh, thinking of kind of a jumpstart opportunity in these places. I'd love to get your reaction to that, Yuva. Globally, you have uh, four different cases in Africa, completely different. I will take two extreme cases. South Africa, the energy infrastructure is in place. Coal is dominant. And there is a real need for transition. And then that will also relate to people who are working on the mining sector, coal mining sector. You need to consider those different aspects. On the other extreme, country like Mali, where energy infrastructure does not exist, access to energy is electricity very limited, and then to 40%. And then where there's no uh, investment you need to protect, there's no worker you need to reskill and then to employ, you will create something that is completely new. And with a combination of centralized, decentralized, and uh, mini-grid uh, connection, different uh, other uh, aspects. In between the two, you have also the case of like uh, Ethiopia or the case of uh, Kenya, where they have a potential of renewable base in the case of Ethiopia, that is hydro. And in the case of Kenya, that is uh, rated to certain extent to geothermal. And then you have also some other country like Senegal, Mozambique, Tanzania, uh, Mauritania, they discover oil and gas, and then they think that their problems are completely solved. And then they're in a dilemma. How to invest? Should they invest in fossil fuel or should they invest in renewables? The problem is that in both cases, they are facing different difficulties. Uh, investing in uh, uh, gas uh, that they will they will invest for a demand that is driven by Europe because Europe is facing conjunctural problems. It's not a structural problem for a short term. And those countries, if they invest on that, they will uh, in, they, they will face standard asset aspect. On the renewable, they need resources. That's the problem. You know, uh, you know, the, 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 the things are not as simple as they look like at the global level. And then we need to look at carefully those different aspects and the bottom line is related to financial resources and then many also are saying private sector the private sector is not philanthropic and then they uh, put money to get more money and then some of the basic infrastructure cannot be based on the private sector and then we need to have the public money for that and then those are some of the complexity and i think that we need to look at carefully in order to be able to have a planet, peaceful planet, and then uh, where well-being of the people are secure. I, I think you said that so well, and you said really that we need to be context specific. You know, we can have a global vision, and I think the one that Amida outlined at the outset is such a powerful vision for where we want to go. But 
in the end, it does matter the context in each place and how we're going to make that work on the ground with local communities, with indigenous leaders. Uh, I mean, I want to give you the last word. What else do you want our listeners to, to know when they think about this idea of just transition? I think maybe we've already helped to reframe it a little bit in their minds. But what else should people know? Well, I think that I, I want people to move away from fear to opportunities. We need to stop, you know, seeing development and climate as opposing forces in competition. And I think the system, the international system, uh, created and domestic processes, you know, too often see them not going hand in hand. While, of course, you start, as Yubatoe tells me all the time, you start from the aspiration, the legitimate aspiration of development from everyone and see the climate measures as really supporting um, those development aspirations, but with the equity lens, again, to make sure that it is benefiting from all, you know, all women, because those measures and those effects and climate effects is, are not gender neutral, are not racially neutral, are not intergenerationally neutral. So I think that's important. Then also, I think it's very important that it's not about just, oh, we need to just reduce emissions at all costs and forget about the need to also build resilience. For a long time, uh, developing countries have been telling developed countries, hey, this is being, being resilient is also a priority for us because we have created, we, we have been responsible the least to the problem and yet, you know, suffering the most in a disproportionate manner. And we need to create the infrastructure, you know, to do that and to invest into the education, raising awareness, to really do both to contributing in keeping the world breathable and to reduce emission, but also um, to be more resilient to climate impact, to adjust when we can, and to face some unavoidable damages and losses with dignity. And I, I would also highlight, you know, as we are moving ahead to some other country consideration, I think this COP has highlighted the nexus between climate and nature, climate and health, climate and trade, climate and security. And that's also something, I think, you know, as Yuba said, desiloing and creating a system change. We may need to work a little bit more with the military establishment. There's a lot we can learn from technology, a lot that we can learn in terms of responses. But if we do that by also bringing local communities, it can be something much more transformational. And I think I'm highlighting those uh, elements uh, because climate is a social, economic conflict, amplifier, good or bad, depending where we're going to do it, but it's really how we're going to approach it. Uh, but I think there's really uh, the opportunity uh, with the different tools that we talked about, more litigation to hold everybody accountable with transparency to, to really get us in a and, and through the radical collaboration, I want to, and I think this is a term that I like because 
the type of partnership that we've seen in the world, including for just energy transition partnership, I think needs to be much more diverse in the type of stakeholders that you bring together to really create the impetus, equitable impetus that you need. And yes, I think um, that radical collaboration, you know, can really get us a, a, a great way, including with the media, as we're approaching so many elections this year, you know, affecting 70% of the population of the world and probably 50% of the GDP. Let's get everybody on board. Everybody, you know, have a role to play, including from voting and and to, to really get the debates right. Get you know reclaim that vision, reclaim that regenerative, restorative, you know way to really get embraced the, the resources of our planet. I, I love that as a point to end on. I mean to talk about the narrative that we need to reclaim, and I think and reframe. I would say, which I think this conversation has done so well. You make me think of the fact that this week our team will be at the Munich Security Conference where. They'll be talking about and covering these very issues because you're right there. The connection points between climate justice and national security are very clear, but they're not as well developed as they should be. And I think this conversation just began to put those elements out there, those pillars where we can really follow up as journalists and as activists on so many issues that that both of you brought up. So I, I just want to say a huge thank you to, to Yamidi Danyet the Director of Climate Justice at Open Society Foundations, and Professor Yuba Sakona, who is the Special Advisor for Sustainable Development at the South Center. What a great discussion to have with the two of you, and thank you to the Open Society Foundations for sponsoring this special edition of This Week in Global Development. We'll be back next week with more. Thank you so much. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description. To get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day, become a DevX Pro member by going to devx.com membership and signing up. Thank you for listening and see you next week.